0: Hello and welcome to the 2019 Hoover Institution Palm Beach Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Lonnie J. Chen, the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Why the Healthcare Wars Just Won't End, and it was recorded on March 20th, 2019.
1: Uh, good to be back in Palm Beach. I was here about a year ago at the Society of the Four Arts, and it's just a tremendously beautiful place, and so I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to be here with you again this morning, talking about a topic that many people often say to me, you know, why is it that we keep talking about health care in the United States? Why does this topic continue to recur as something that we're having a national conversation about? And the answer is because it's 20% of the economy. It's a huge part of the economy. It touches every person's life in the United States. And so the question of what we are going to do with healthcare reform, with the healthcare system, is one that continues to perplex us. Now, a lot of people thought that when President Obama led the passage of Obamacare several years ago, that that would be the end of the conversation. But I would posit very differently. I think that was actually the beginning of the conversation. And in a lot of ways, we are now coming into a phase of our national debate on this issue where we're finally going to have a conversation about something that many other countries have bought into, the notion of a single-payer health care system. And this is a very, very dangerous thing. It's a very pernicious thing when we think about the progress of health systems around the world. If you look at single-payer health systems around the world, what you realize is lower quality, poorer outcomes, and in many cases, higher costs. And it's the kind of system, incidentally, that many of the Democratic Party's leading presidential contenders have endorsed. And so what I wanna do this morning is to spend a little bit of time talking about where we are in these healthcare debates. I wanna talk about where we are with respect to Obamacare. Yes, it's still the law of the land. Yes, it still exists. And think a little bit about what progressives and Democrats and liberals are proposing when they talk about single-payer health care. I think it's very important for us to have some precision when we think about what we mean by single-payer. There are all sorts of single-payer systems around the world. The system in the United Kingdom, for example, is very different from the system they have in Taiwan. It's very different from the kind of system they have in Singapore. And the kind of system that Bernie Sanders and others want to bring here to the United States is actually far more Uh, comprehensive and far-reaching than any of those systems. A lot of people don't realize this, but we're not talking about instituting the National Health Service in the United States as they have in the UK. We're talking about a far more dramatic reordering of our healthcare system. I want to talk a little bit about where we are, where the Democrats want to take us, and then conclude by talking about what the, the free market conservative alternative might be. Now I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to have an opportunity to advance a free market set of reforms for healthcare anytime in the near future given the political dynamics. But I think it's useful for those of us at places like Hoover to think about what the conservative alternative would look like. So we'll conclude by talking a little bit about that. I'm a fan of political cartoons and so let me start with this one. This one uh, uh, I found recently because I I think it encapsulates how uh, on on the right a lot of people think about our healthcare system which is single payer is you right you've got rising healthcare costs people are frustrated that their premiums continue to rise they seem to be getting less care and paying more money but the alternative obviously is big uncle sam and the the big footing of the healthcare system that would occur if we were to move toward a single payer healthcare system and i think this portrayal while obviously a little dramatic is actually quite true i think what a single payer healthcare system would do is fundamentally displaced the healthcare system we have now. As we'll talk about in a little bit, a lot of Americans don't realize this. They think we can have single payer and you can keep whatever coverage you have now. And that's simply a fantasy. If we move to a single payer healthcare system, the very definition of single payer is that there is a single payer of healthcare services and that single payer is the federal government. You're not going to have the plan you like now. You may not even have the doctor that you like now. And so that transition is one that's very important for us uh, to understand and to recognize when we think about the future of the healthcare system. So uh, let me start by level setting us. What's the latest in the healthcare uh, battles? First of all, a number of Democrats have already said that they want to move to a single-payer healthcare system. And in fact, all of the leading Democrats have endorsed some form of single-payer. The most extreme of them, of course, is our friend Bernie Sanders. Uh, who has decided that the single-payer health care plan he proposed some years ago is not liberal enough. And so what he has done instead is he has said he would like to move into a single-payer system, transitioning every single American to a single-payer health care system within two years. Uh, You have Kamala Harris, the senator from California, who had a a, a very sort of um, adoring media crowd sort of uh, saying that she had a great launch. But she came out and said she would favor a single-payer single health care system, even if it meant that the coverage you had now would be removed. And she said she's for single-payer. Cory Booker has said he's for single-payer. You go down the list, pretty much every single leading Democrat has endorsed the notion of single-payer health care. So this really is going to be a major front, I would argue, in the 2020 presidential campaign. President Trump has talked about the framing of this campaign as a battle between socialism and capitalism. And I think in a lot of ways he's right. I think health care will be the first frontier of that battle. And so you're seeing that already with what the Democrats are saying. The second point I would raise is that we're in a little bit of a lull right now in terms of news about Obamacare. You may have noticed, I mean, I I track this pretty closely, the amount of mentions in the media about Obamacare. It's actually relatively low right now because we're not talking about the question of health care premiums. Usually when the Obamacare topic pops back up is when people are thinking about how much they're paying in health insurance premiums. But I would argue that we're going to start to hear a little bit more dialogue about this as we look ahead to what premiums are gonna be like next year. And we'll start to have a better sense of that as we move toward May and June, when most states have to file, essentially, uh, what their rates are gonna be in the coming year. We'll have a much better sense of what premiums are gonna be, and I'd argue we're gonna see some escalations in 2020. 2019 was a reprieve year. A lot of news about health insurance premiums not rising as dramatically in 2019 as in previous years. But 2020, I think, will return back to trend. And we'll probably see double-digit percentage premium increases on average in a lot of states. And I think that's going to force people to examine the question again of how well Obamacare is working. Now, I think, unfortunately, it's also going to increase the energy for single-payer health care systems. But I think we're going to hear a lot more dialogue on cost as we get to the spring and the summer. And the final point I would make, and this is something that's really traveled under the radar a little bit, the mainstream media doesn't like to cover this too much. But what the president and his administration have actually done is to effectuate some pretty significant changes to Obamacare. That actually the, the way the law was written gave the administration, whatever administration is in power, tremendous flexibility to implement the law as they see fit. And what this administration has done is to try and move the law in a more market-oriented direction. They've done things, for example, like creating greater optionality on marketplaces by saying we can offer a greater variety of different kinds of health insurance plans. We don't just have to offer the so-called Cadillac plans. We can also offer things that are called short-term limited duration plans, which offer fewer benefits, yes, but at a much lower price point, potentially very attractive for younger Americans who don't... Consume as much in healthcare services, so that this administration has actually done a lot to expand the playing field when it comes to healthcare solutions, and I think that's a good thing, and I don't think they get nearly enough credit for it. So let me um, uh, talk about three trends that I think are worth watching as we think about healthcare moving forward. The first has to do with the popularity of Obamacare, and this is a, a chart I, I've shown uh, for several years as I've talked about this topic, and. The three lines are the favorability of Obamacare amongst different populations. The top line is the favorability of Obamacare amongst Democrats, the middle line is amongst independents, and the bottom line is amongst Republicans. Given the length of this time series, this is about an eight to nine year span of data, there's remarkable continuity in how people view Obamacare. And that is that in general, Democrats like it, independents don't know what to think of it, and Republicans don't like it. And this consistency we've seen over the years, yes, we've seen some spikes. For example, you'll recall when they had the little snafu with the website healthcare.gov, that spiked negative opinion. When we had the election, uh, and shortly thereafter in 2016, when Republicans tried to repeal Obamacare, that actually resulted in some positive affect for the law, but by and large, you'll see there's remarkable stability in how people view Obamacare. And it's no surprise because for a while, uh, political scientists studied this and they found that people's views of Obamacare were very much tied up with their views of President Obama. That in fact, uh, there's a very close correlation between the two. And I think to this day, a lot of people's feelings about Obamacare are related to that. Now there's no question, that there are elements of Obamacare that are quite popular. The, the most interesting element of this is if you ask people about how they feel about Obamacare generally, they'll give you an answer based on partisanship. But if you ask about the individual provisions of the law, for example, the uh, prohibition against preexisting condition exclusions, that's very popular. You ask people about, do you like the fact that you can keep dependents up to age 26 on your plan? They say, yeah, absolutely, I love that. And then you ask them, well, do you like Obamacare? And you get all sorts of different answers. It's a very, very interesting phenomenon. But the reality is there's been remarkable stability here. Now, the biggest selling points of Obamacare were, first of all, that it would increase coverage. And second of all, that it would decrease cost. Well, I can tell you pretty conclusively the second hasn't happened. But what about the first? And the answer here is that the the, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, did actually do quite a bit to lower the percentage of uninsured in the United States. You'll see we went from a high of about 18% in 2009 during the height of the economic crisis to about 10% today. Now why is that? First of all, Obamacare included a massive expansion of a government program called Medicaid. Medicaid is the joint federal state program that was originally designed to serve low-income single moms, but was expanded dramatically by Obamacare to include any American making less than 138% of the federal poverty line. And so that expansion of the program is responsible for about 80% of the coverage gains that we see here. But the other fascinating thing is you'll notice that the coverage gains have basically stopped. We basically stopped around a 10% on insurance rate. Now, why is that? First of all, Obamacare cannot compel people to buy something they don't want. And fundamentally, what Obamacare tried to do is it tried to standardize the health care offerings that most Americans receive through their health insurance plans. But a lot of Americans didn't want to buy a gold-plated plan. They didn't want to spend $300 a month on health care. And so they elected, essentially, to, to not buy coverage and for a while they were actually subject to a tax penalty for not doing so. But as many of you know in late 2017 the Republican Congress and President Trump signed into law a tax reform bill that included a repeal of the penalty associated with the individual mandate. So now Americans who don't want to buy coverage won't face a tax penalty for doing so and so it's possible you might see this uninsurance rate creep back up again in part because you've got people electing voluntarily to not buy coverage. The other part of the population that's being reflected in this uninsured are uh, undocumented immigrants. So that's actually a pretty big chunk of this. And unless we make a public policy decision, which I don't think we will, but some Democrats would like us to, if we make a public policy decision to provide federal subsidization to undocumented immigrants, then that would lower the percentage as well. All right, so we are at a point now where we've achieved a plateau in how low this uninsurance rate will go unless we make different public policy decisions. Based on the decisions we've made thus far, this is pretty much where we are. So the alternative then that a lot of people on the left have said they like is single payer. So let's spend a a good amount of time talking about single payer and what it would involve. So let me start with some public opinion. This is a, a, a chart, a time series that looks at the support amongst the public for a single government plan. That's the way the, the poll question is worded. And we've seen this relatively consistently over time. The level of support has hovered between about 40% and about 58%. And recently that number is higher. You'll see February 2019 is the most recent poll than it was back in the 1998 to 2000 period when we were debating the Clinton health care plan. So what what we notice is, there's a decent amount of stability, it's relatively polarized, and it's also become more popular over the years. And so what we see also, as I mentioned earlier, is a difference in opinion between Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. So this is a question of whether you favor or oppose Medicare for All, a national healthcare uh, single-government plan, and predictably, Republicans, that large green bar, are those who strongly oppose a single payer plan. And Democrats, the red bar, those who, who strongly favor a single payer plan. So just as Obamacare was polarized, so too is single payer health care polarized. Hence the answer to the question of why these health care wars won't end. Because you have tremendous political polarization on the issue of health care. And as you can see, Republicans not only oppose it, but they strongly oppose it. You know, If you ask pollsters about what the holy grail of poll results are, they'll tell you the key concept is intensity. It's not actually how many people oppose it, because a lot of people will give you an answer if prompted. It's how many people express a strong opinion about a concept. And what you see here is dueling strong opinions. The Democrats have a very strong opinion on one side, the Republicans have a very strong opinion on the other side. there are actually many flavors of single-payer health care. Let's talk about what those are. And by the way, there are active proposals on all of these fronts right now. There are active pieces of legislation in the U.S. Congress addressing all of these different types of single-payer health care. The first and most dramatic is what has been called Medicare for All. Now it's interesting because some of the, of the Democrats don't like to, to call it Medicare for All because they realize that that will scare people into thinking the Medicare program is changing. Others really embrace the concept, so people call it different things. But fundamentally what Medicare for All is, is a single national health insurance plan for every U.S. resident. And that includes undocumented immigrants. So every single proposal right now that Democrats have put on the table would provide coverage for undocumented immigrants. Uh, Bernie Sanders has a proposal, a fellow named Keith Ellison from Minnesota has another proposal, Uh, Pramila Jayapal, who's a relatively young member of Congress from the state of Washington, she heads the single-payer caucus in the Congress, and she has proposed the most extreme version of this, which would basically include all healthcare benefits and a free car for every American. Yeah, Medicare for all is a tremendously broad concept, but but fundamentally it it, it really is the replacement of our healthcare system with something very different. A step away from that is something called Medicare buy-in. You may recall when we had the debate over Obamacare some years ago, a, a lot of Democrats wanted to create what was called a public option. The idea of the public option was to create a plan that would compete with other private plans in the marketplace but would be a government plan in essence would be a government fallback that people could elect to be part of and that proposal was defeated in part because democrats realized it was politically very unpopular at the time well that idea has had a renaissance and the notion of a medicare buy-in simply is that you would offer the suite of medicare benefits medicare is a uh, a quite comprehensive health care plan. It is beloved by many who are part of it. And the notion would be that people could go on the Obamacare marketplace and pick a plan from Blue Shield or a plan from Humana or a plan from Aetna or pick Medicare. So the idea would be that you would allow a large population of people to buy into the Medicare program. A variant of that is to open up the Medicare program to people who are on the cusp of Medicare eligibility. So people who are aged 55 to 64. The the rationale for limiting it to that age group is that that is actually an age at which it is very expensive to buy private health insurance because the amount of healthcare consumption at that age bracket is much higher than it is on average than at lower age brackets. So the idea is to create an affordable option to buy into for people who fall into that age category between 55 and 64. So we're going from most extreme to least extreme when you think about Medicare for all, a Medicare buy-in, and then a Medicare buy-in for older Americans. Then there's something that's come into play in the last couple of years called a Medicaid buy-in. And this is the notion that we would expand the Medicaid program and create an option in states that want to, that people could not only buy a private plan on the Obamacare marketplace, but they could also buy uh, into the Medicaid plan for that state. Now the, there are many, many challenges with this. You know Medicaid has gotten tremendously more popular in the wake of the effort by Republicans to change the program in 2017. But many, many years of study on the Medicaid program have shown it's not a particularly good form of health insurance. Uh, There was a a, a very famous study that health economists undertook in Oregon many years ago, where they compared, they they had a, a, a perfect sample, where they were able to compare a group of patients that had gotten by lottery into the Medicaid program with a group of patients that didn't have health insurance coverage at all. Very similar health attributes between the two groups. And what they found is that those who were on the Medicaid program did not exhibit statistically significant better healthcare outcomes than those who are uninsured. And the the challenges with the Medicaid program are that while it provides a very generous suite of benefits, fewer and fewer physicians and healthcare providers across the country are taking Medicaid because the reimbursement levels have to be so low. They have to be so low because states have expanded Medicaid and it's a very costly program. So the notion of allowing people to buy into Medicaid has become politically popular because the program has risen in political popularity, but creates all sorts of public policy problems. So when you hear about single-payer health care in the discussion, bear in mind it could be in reference to any one of these different things. But more precisely, you have Medicare for All, and then you have a series of what might be considered public options. Um, The question of how people feel about single-payer, by the way, is impacted by what you call it. Now, as you might expect, if you call it socialized medicine, people don't like it very much. If you call it Medicare for all, it's probably the most popular right now. Medicare for all, universal health care, those do relatively well. National health plans, single payer do less well. And of course, socialized medicine is at the bottom of the list. So as you hear Democrats on the campaign trail come up with newfangled ways of describing what is essentially a government takeover of the health care system, bear in mind that what they're doing is responding to a very carefully poll-tested set of concepts because how people view this question is very much based on the terminology that's used to describe it. Let me dig in a little bit more on Medicare for All because this is the one that I think we're going to hear about the most. Um, as I said earlier, th- this would be a complete replacement for our healthcare system. This would not be grafting private plans on top of a public plan. This would be replacing everybody's health insurance coverage with a national single health insurance plan. There would be no more employer-sponsored health insurance. There would be no more Medicare. Under some formulations, there would be no more Medicaid either. Um, The transition periods vary. What do I mean by that? Some people uh, have proposed plans, Bernie Sanders' original proposal was like this, that said we're going to have a four-year transition between the system we have now and the future single-payer health care system. But just think about that for a minute. Four years, even four years, is a very short amount of time to completely rework the American health care system. But now you have people, Sanders included, that are saying, well, actually, maybe we could do it in two years. So the transition period for movement to a single-payer healthcare system differs based on plans. Um, What about the benefits? Well, the benefits in this plan would be very, very generous. They would be far more generous than, for example, what you might find in the National Health Service in the U.K., more generous than what you would find in Canada. Uh, At a very, very minimum, this plan would cover all of the benefits that are covered by Obamacare plan. There's a concept... Uh, in the Obamacare law known as essential health benefits. That's 10 categories of health benefits coverage. The Medicare for All plan would include at a minimum those things, plus all sorts of different bells and whistles. So Keith Ellison's proposal includes palliative care, it includes dental care, some plans include long-term health care, uh, some plans include at-home health care, And so it is a very, very broad set of benefits that we're talking about that are included uh, in the Medicare for All suite of benefits. They also include coverage for prescription drugs. And by the way, there are no co-payments. There is no co-insurance. Everything is free from the first dollar. All of these plans have that in common. So it it is pretty fundamentally different from what we have today. Look, no one likes copayments and co-insurance. They're not the most popular concept, but there's actually a very good reason we have copayments and co-insurance. We have them to create consumer discipline. The notion is that if people have some skin in the game, if they have a little bit of contribution to their health care, they're going to be thinking carefully about what kind of health care they consume. So the opposite of that corollary is also true, that if you don't have co-payments and you don't have co-insurance and you don't have any buy-in into the program... Healthcare consumption is gonna rise dramatically. It's a concept in the economics literature known as moral hazard. And so what you're gonna see is you're gonna see a dramatic increase in healthcare consumption. And what does that also mean? A dramatic increase in cost. So the, the challenge with every single payer system around the world has been cost containment. Well, how do single payer systems deal with cost containment? They ration care, right? Very simply. They 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 have a, a set of government bureaucrats that makes decisions about what is and is not medically necessary. And so the the idea with Medicare for all is very similar. So one form of the Medicare for all legislation says that a a group of government bureaucrats will come together to determine the levels at which certain procedures will be compensated. And so progressives will say, well, that's not rationing. That's people getting together and saying how much a particular service is worth. That sounds like rationing to me. And so that the idea is you have to figure out some way of constraining cost. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. Other Medicare for All programs say, well, we've got a different way to do it. We're going to set a global budget for health care. So we're going to say that health care expenses shall not exceed this amount. So nobody's telling anybody which health care services to provide and not to provide. Well, of course. If you set a ceiling on how much health care services can be provided, the number of health care services that can be provided, and that's rationing care, because once you hit that limit, by definition, there will be no further health care services. So there always has to be a way of limiting the health care expenditure in single-payer systems. Otherwise, the system goes bankrupt. The last point I'll make is one that should be fairly obvious to everyone in the room. There has been dramatically less discussion of how these things are going to be paid for. And in some cases, there's been complete opacity and obfuscation. Bernie Sanders kind of waves his hands a lot. Beto O'Rourke waves his hands a lot. Um, and they don't tend to say very much about how it is one will pay for this. And, and I think for good reason. Because the numbers have a very, very difficult time adding up. Uh, a, a colleague of mine at Hoover, a guy named Chuck Blahouse, has done a very, very good study that looks at the cost of Medicare for all. He estimates it at $33 trillion. Um, You've got to raise a lot of taxes to, to pay for that even if you were to divert all of the spending the federal government currently does on healthcare, which by the way is what these plans call for. They call for a complete diversion of every dollar the federal government currently spends on healthcare, plus the addition of new taxes, whether it's a wealth tax like Elizabeth Warren has called for, an increase in tax on labor, an increase in tax on capital. People have proposed all these different tax increases, but intuitively you should know that it doesn't really matter how much these folks talk about raising taxes, healthcare expenditure inflation rises much more quickly than inflation of the economy generally. And so the question will always be, how are you going to pay for it? And so far I haven't heard a very compelling answer to that question. Um, this is a point I was alluding to earlier. And, and th- this is why I think this debate will be very interesting. As we talk more about what the impact of single-payer health care will be, I predict it will become a lot less popular. And this is a, a, a good uh, proof point of that. The question is, would switching to a single-payer system mean changing your health insurance? And 52% of Democrats said no. Think about that for a minute. Over half of Democrats polled said that going to single-payer would not affect their current health insurance. Well, that's demonstrably false. What's shocking, though, is that you know, 44% of Republicans, 44% of people with employer coverage, and half of independents said the same thing. And so the, the, this is going to be a giant educational campaign we're going to go through here over the course of the next uh, year as we have this discussion. The people are going to realize what single-payer health care system means. I, I, I think it will affect dramatically how people view the concept of single-payer health care. Let me uh, wrap up with a few uh, slides, and then we'll take some questions on where the Trump administration is focusing its energy now and, uh, and, and where we're headed in terms of conservative health care reform. Uh, the, the Trump administration, as I said earlier, has been focused on shaping the implementation of Obamacare in a more market-oriented direction. They have done that by expanding the kinds of plans people have access to. I mentioned this earlier. They've expanded access to something known as association health plans, which is really a fancy way of saying small businesses can get together and they can offer health insurance as a group of small businesses to their employees because the the first precept of insurance is that you want to lower the cost by expanding the pool of people covered. And so the notion is if you get a lot of people to get together and offer coverage, coverage will be less expensive, and this administration has actually opened up the rules on that. Um, They've been very committed to stopping Medicaid expansion. Now, you may know there's been a big debate in this over the last couple of years. States have had the option to expand Medicaid or not, Many states throughout the country did take the option to expand Medicaid because they were given a a sweetheart deal by the federal government. They're now discovering, by the way, it's more expensive than they signed up for. Um, But a number of states now are passing Medicaid expansion at the ballot box. So Utah is a good example. The state of Utah had a public initiative on Medicaid expansion and it passed. So now the state legislators and the governor are trying to figure out how do we implement Medicaid expansion in a cost-effective way. The administration's been pretty committed to stopping that. The most exciting thing I think this administration has done in healthcare is to encourage state innovation. There are a number of provisions in existing law. There's one in Obamacare, there's one in the Medicaid statute, for example, that give states tremendous flexibility to experiment with their own healthcare systems to essentially create their own healthcare systems that serve the needs of their residents as opposed to adopting federal rules. And I think you're gonna see a lot more exciting innovation in this area in part because the administration has basically said we're gonna open it up. We're gonna finally allow states the opportunity to uh, innovate in this area. And I think you're gonna see things, uh, work requirements in Medicaid is just one example, very, very controversial thing. Uh, A lot of people on the left really don't like the idea of making uh, folks work or look for work if they're going to be on Medicaid, but this is something that a number of states have implemented, Kentucky and Arkansas being uh, most notable amongst them. And the second thing is you've got a lot of states now that have very creative ways of lowering health insurance premiums. Um, The use of reinsurance pools is one example of that, where basically you say you've got a group of people you know is going to be very expensive to insure. You're going to put extra money into helping just those people get insured, and that lowers their costs. So these are examples of things that this administration has been very friendly toward, ideas that they have been embracing in looking at the future of healthcare reform. Now uh, this is, just very briefly, this is a chart or a map that shows you just how far the Medicaid expansion has gone. Now you've got a couple of holdouts in the sort of mountain west, the upper midwest, and of course the south. All the states colored in dark blue have not expanded Medicaid. Um, Florida where we are now it's been a big topic of discussion over the last few years there's a tremendous amount of of public interest in certain parts of the state I'd argue that if your your gubernatorial election here in Florida had gone a different way you'd be seeing Medicaid expansion right now Uh, but obviously uh, uh, the current governor feels very differently than the Democratic candidate did about this issue but there's no question this is going to continue to be a huge issue as as we go forward um, the next round of healthcare reform, if there is to be a next round of healthcare reform for Republicans. Um, the, the dynamic that we saw in the repeal and replace discussion in 2017 was really how many different factions there are within the Republican Party on healthcare. And so, whatever healthcare reform happens next for conservatives, there's got to be some way of holding together this disparate coalition of libertarians like Rand Paul, moderates like Susan Collins of Maine and then more traditional conservatives, and then people who are are sort of uh, in the more populous swing of the Republican Party. And this is gonna gonna present a huge challenge. But whatever we do next, the focus has to be on cost. There's no way around this. The, The next set of healthcare reforms, coverage is great, but coverage comes when cost is low. It is a natural thing that follows. So focusing on coverage at the expense of cost, I think was a big mistake of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, We have to empower states. I think that's where all the innovation is going to happen over the next few years. By the way, because Washington is so gridlocked, the states are really where things are happening. And so we have to figure out a way to to get health care back to the states as it was before Obamacare. And and I think the political reality here is that you've got to give the president something to be able to say, look, we're making the system better and you have to be able to give him something to stand on because it's an election year coming up, right? If we're gonna do any kind of healthcare over the next year and a half, it's gotta satisfy these requirements. I think, again, given where we are politically, very, very difficult to get there. Very difficult to get there. But were we to try, um, here's some things to think about in terms of ideas, and I'll I'll wrap up here and and look forward to taking your questions. First, uh, a lot of politically popular parts of Obamacare, I think, are here to stay. Uh, You know, it's not something that I particularly gain a lot of joy from saying, because I think what they did with Obamacare was very pernicious, because they said, look, here are some things we know are going to be very popular. We're going to insert them into the law, and we're therefore going to make it very, very difficult to ever repeal the thing. And that's exactly what happened, right? So things like pre-existing condition coverage exclusions, those are likely to remain. And I don't think there's much of a debate over that anymore. I think that's just sort of a given. We have to put that to the side. Um, I would consider taking a lot of the funding that goes into Obamacare, you know, there's a lot of money that goes, for example, into helping to cover low-income populations, not the Medicaid folks, but the working poor who don't qualify for Medicaid, who make too much money. I would figure out a way to take that money and to give it to states and let them figure out what kind of healthcare solution works best for that population. So you have, for example, some states where there's a high population of people who are working poor that are cycling between jobs all the time. Well, the coverage that they need is very different from another state where workers might be less mobile, where you've got people who are working in jobs for longer and at the same place. So states need to be able to figure out how to address those populations differently in the best way they see fit. Um, The other issue that I think drives a lot of conservatives nuts is when you look at how much money is spent per capita on coverage for the poor, it differs dramatically by state. So Massachusetts spends something like four and a half times more per poor American than a state like Texas does. Now, some of that's because of state-level decisions. But a lot of that's because the federal government just sends more money per capita to states like Massachusetts. So the question is, can we equalize how much money is spent on the poor by state? And I think that is certainly an option that people are looking into. It was part of the so-called Graham-Cassidy legislation at the end of the repeal and replace debate in 2017. And I think would be a, a very, very good outcome. And the last thing I'll say is I think we need more consumer dynamics in healthcare, not less. And health savings accounts would be a big part of that. Now, they're not the, the, the unicorn solution. I don't subscribe to the notion that we can expand health savings accounts and everything will be great for everybody. But I do think we need more. And I think we need more consumer dynamics. I think we need more people enrolling in them. I have a health savings account. Um, They're not for everybody, but I think they work well for a broad swath of the population of a certain age, for example. And so we've got to do more in public policy to promote health savings accounts and consumer dynamics. The opposite from what progressives want to do with Medicare for all, which is essentially to create no consumer dynamics, I, I, I think what we need are more. And so the, the big question over these next several years is going to be what direction fundamentally our healthcare system goes in. You know, recall at the outset I said we're going to have a very fundamental debate about the future of our healthcare system, two very different visions. A vision that's premised on market-based reforms that empower states and empowers patients versus a system that is fundamentally centralized and re- relies on government to control spending, relies on government to make decisions. And, and this debate is going to be front and center. As we think about this presidential campaign coming up, there is no question in my mind that of all the issues we're going to be talking about come this time next year, health care, and in particular single-payer health care, is going to be foremost amongst them. And so I look forward to seeing what happens. I look forward to the debate of ideas, and I'm confident that the better ideas will win. So with that, let me... Um, take your questions.
0: For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.